what are you doing to separate yourself from the competition? Instead of drawing light to what your weaknesses are, what are you drawing light to in terms of your strengths? And then you got to double down on those strengths. Then once you're in that conversation to talk about all of the strengths of having your property versus other properties, how are you going to translate that into economic success for the counterparty? And how are you going to play on their emotions because emotions are big in negotiations to turn that logical opportunity into an emotional connection. Welcome to the CRE Project Podcast, where investors, developers, brokers, and real estate entrepreneurs join together to grow, build, and execute on experience and strategies within the commercial real estate industry. We sit down with the top pros and leaders within the commercial real estate field and gain knowledge and insight from their success. We're glad you're here and look forward to connecting with you. You can find the CRE Project on all major podcast platforms, along with YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, listeners, welcome to today's show on the CRE Project podcast. Uh, Today, we talk about a very important, uh, very critical uh, utility within the commercial real estate space, and that is negotiation. Uh, We have a gentleman by the name of Mark Raffin uh, joining us today, and he is a absolute expert when it comes to negotiation. Uh, He's an entrepreneur. He's been in uh, the procurement space. He's also the podcast host and uh, speaker and creator of the Negotiations Ninja podcast. Um, He's just, you know, if you guys listen to, to other podcasts and you look on YouTube and you you Google negotiation, uh, you're more than likely going to have Mark's name come up. He's just a very talented individual, studies negotiation on a deeper level, um, and just adds a tremendous amount of value uh, to his listeners and now to our audience uh, when it comes to negotiating, because ultimately, that is what we do on a daily basis in commercial real estate and uh, careers can change based on how you negotiate. So we absolutely were thrilled to have him on the show, uh, thoroughly enjoyed the information that he conveyed to us uh, in the conversation, and uh, we know you'll love it. So sit back, relax. Here we go. Mark, thanks for being here, man. Greatly. Thank you for having me, dude. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Like I mentioned, I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity (laughs) because you're constantly, constantly in my ear. I am a massive, (laughs) massive Is is that a good thing or a bad thing? (laughs) I'm not really sure. (laughs) Well, I feel like I'm smarter uh, because you're constantly in my ear. That's good. Definitely a good thing. And I'm a huge fan of your podcast, Negotiations Ninja, and... uh, you know, we're, we're obviously going to have that in the show notes, but for all our listeners out there, uh, Mark is a negotiations expert and he is also the creator of negotiations ninja, which is a training program, uh, for negotiating. And then he has a few other businesses he's going to talk about as well. But, um, you know, Gannon and I huddled, uh, 
at the beginning of the year and said, you know, what, what can our listeners mostly benefit from um, listening to on the podcast? And negotiations is something that in commercial real estate, we are constantly exposed to. We are constantly doing uh, versus, you know, landlord and tenant, buyer and seller, um, you know, whether there's an existing relationship or a new relationship. So again, especially I've a lot these days, yourself. right, Clay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a blood sport. I mean, we need every edge we can get. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, Mark, we, we, we greatly appreciate you having on, uh, having you on and, uh, thank you for being here. So, um, we've given them a little bit of background on who you are and I know I just kind of reiterated that, but you know, we'd really like to hear from you, like what kind of drew you towards, I, I think it's such a unique niche to really kind of specialize in, in negotiating. I mean, what kind of drew you to that and what's kind of your history? Just give us kind of the quick rundown on, on who you are. Yeah, totally. Um, so it's negotiation is just something that I've always done. Uh, right out of university, I started a career in sales, um, did ad sales for a while, paid off all my student loans, and then uh, got into a career in procurement, which is just sitting on the other side of the sales team. Uh, and did that for a very, very long time, worked my way up through the ranks and then realized at a certain point that I didn't really want to be the corporate guy. I didn't want to live the corporate life. I wanted to do my own thing. Um, and then I started a blog while I was working. The blog started hitting off. The blog turned into a podcast. The podcast turned into a training company. Um, and now it's just sort of snowballed from there, which is pretty amazing. I'm, I feel pretty blessed, man. Pretty lucky to be able to do what I love, which is pretty incredible. And what, what drew you specifically to negotiation? I'm just curious. I don't know. Maybe I just You're like arguing fascinated by it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I th I'm a huge fan of understanding and studying human behavior. So uh, just seeing how people respond to things and how my words, my actions, my body language, the tone of my voice can elicit a response that you may not have planned for. Um, is super interesting to me and how people respond in certain situations is really interesting. And that's why I started the second business as well, which is a, a content marketing business because that's all about human behavior too. So um, yeah, I just, I'm a huge fan of human behavior and this helps me to live in that world every single day. Yeah. They're very interesting. So, well, let's, let's dive right in. So I think one thing that we talked about, Yana and I is, is really, you know, we wanted to kind of get your opinion on what are the, what are the most, since you're an expert in this and you study it, what are the most common mistakes you see people making, you know, on a daily basis when it comes to negotiating? Again, we're, we're in the commercial real estate world. I mean, you know, there's often millions of dollars at stake, some very egotistical mindsets, people that are very <laughs> proud of themselves. What are, what are some, some very, very common mistakes that people make when it comes to negotiate, negotiating? The single most common mistake I see people make is not planning enough um, and not having done all of your research. Not just like understanding the financials of the deal or understanding liquidity of the other party or capitalization or whatever it might be, but understanding who the other party is and who the other party works for and really trying to understand their human perspective more than anything else. Um, I, the vast majority of people that I work with don't plan enough. Um, and they don't 
plan out their deal to be successful. So even if they do the research, they don't then take that research in a formalized way that they can recreate over and over and over again so they can have repeatable success to be able to tackle the next negotiation. And so they, they're just not ready. The vast majority of people are just not ready to go into the negotiation. A lot of people think for whatever reason, maybe it's the media or movies that have done this to us, but a lot of people think that negotiation is like almost like a gunslinger's paradise, right? Like where you kind of just shoot from the hip and, you know, hey, this is what we're going to do. And you see people bash on the table with their fists and stuff. It's just not that way. It's not that way at all. It's very disciplined. Um, it's very strategic. It's very formulaic. And if you can plan out your negotiation ahead of time as best as you can, you're going to be significantly more likely to succeed in the long run. And you're going to be able to be able to create repeatable success. And that's the important part that a lot of people don't get as well is like, you know, they, they don't even know what they did last time to make themselves successful because they didn't plan it out and then they didn't debrief. And that's probably the second biggest problem that I see is people don't do debriefs after their negotiation. They don't analyze what they did, when they did it, how the other party responded, where they think they went wrong, where they didn't get a response that they thought they were going to get. They just, they just don't do that. And so they have no idea what they did well. They have no idea what they didn't do well. And so they can never improve. Um, and, and negotiation is something that can be taught. It's not something that um, you know, you're naturally born with. I mean, sure, there are certain people that have natural communication skills, no question. But it's like being an athlete, right? You, there are certain athletes that have natural athletic skills, but if those athletes don't work, the person who works really, really hard every single day is going to outperform the natural athlete. Negotiation is exactly the same way. And if you don't work on improving your skills in negotiation, how could you ever expect to get better? Same thing applies. Yeah. So the first thing I spoke about was lack of preparation, lack of planning. The second thing was debriefing after the negotiation to determine what went well, what didn't go well. Um, some people call those postmortems right? What was the postmortem of what we did? How do we deal with that doing better next time? The third thing that I think most people don't do is they don't ask for more than they expect to get. Um, and this is a very, very critical error. Um, and there's some research that's been done that suggests the reason for this is because of fear, fear of rejection, fear of ridicule, fear of what the other person might say, fear of looking like a fool, whatever it might be, there's fear that's attached to asking for more. We, we negotiate with ourselves before we even go into the negotiation. So we think in our head, oh, I can't ask for that. That's, you know, quote unquote, unreasonable. And so maybe I should ask for something less. And so we've actually negotiated with ourselves before we even go into the negotiation. Uh, and now what's ending up happening is we're not asking for more than we expect to get. This is a negotiation. So the counterparty naturally is going to ask for something significantly more than what we've asked for. And now we've actually set ourselves back in the negotiation. And so a, a lot of people need to get over that, that fear of asking for more and that awkwardness of feeling like they're being quote unquote unreasonable. And that only comes through volume and it only comes through practice. Um, you got to keep going over and over and over and over again. Yeah, all, all great points. My 
So I have a, I have a few questions. Um, as it relates to the first item, um, which is really kind of preparation, what do you do personally or what do a lot of your clients do uh, to prepare for a negotiation typically? Is there some kind of regimen that you yes. would be an advocate for? What is that? Yeah. Like? Yeah. I have a very strict process that I follow every time. So first things first, I, want, I need to know personally, what do I need and what do I want out of a negotiation? And those are two completely different things, but most of us get them very confused. So what do I need to get the deal done? What are my must haves? And then what are my wants? What are my nice to haves? Now, emotionally, we get caught up in the wants, right? Because, oh, we really want a Ferrari, but we actually only need a Toyota, right? And so we get, we get caught up in this idea of like, well, I got to get all these wants. And so that drives us to a point of like getting completely overzealous in a negotiation and potentially derailing it. So I've got to get very clear with myself internally within my own organization or myself and to think about what do I need? What do I want? And list those out as many items as I can. What do I need? What do I want out of this negotiation? Then I prioritize those things from most important to least important. Then I map those items on a quick little matrix of worst case scenario, target scenario, and best case scenario. Now, so many people think that negotiation is, um, is gray, right? You're dealing with gray area all the time, which is true, but what they don't understand is that you can actually map out that gray area. And essentially what I'm doing with all of my needs and wants, mapping it against worst case target and best case scenario is now I'm mapping out that gray area. So my worst case scenario on any item. So let, I mean, we're in the commercial real estate business. So let's just think about lease length just as an example, right? I'm going into a negotiation. I'm trying to understand the lease that I'm getting into. What's the, and I'm now the, the lessor. So I'm trying to think about, okay, I'm going to try and get the lowest lease that I can or the longest lease that I can to try and extend out my payments, whatever it might be. What's my worst case scenario? And if I don't get above my worst case scenario, and this is a must have item, this is a need, then this now is going to cause me to think, is this a point where I have to walk away in this deal? So I've got to determine what is my worst case scenario in any of the items that I've listed so that I can very clearly understand where my walk away line is in the overall scope of the deal. And then as long as I'm getting between my worst case scenario and my best case scenario, now I've got to start thinking about, okay, how do I optimize the deal? to start improving it to get to my best case scenario in each of the items and what concessions do I have to make on the other items to optimize my needs as much as possible to the best case scenario. So yeah. that's, that's probably the start of where you really need to be just personally. Now that's just you. Now you've got to think about the other party. What does the other party need? What does the other party want? You've got to think about listing out all of those things and then mapping all of those items. Now, you're going to make some guesses, right? You're going to make some assumptions about where they might want to be and what they might want to get out of this, but you can vet those assumptions through the conversation that you have with them through open-ended questions. Now, you can plan your open-ended questions ahead of time, like what are the challenges facing your organization today with the state of commercial real estate the way it is right now? 
right? How are you guys dealing with cash flow? How are you guys dealing with capitalization? What are the problems you're facing? All of those questions have to come out so that you can determine where you have leverage in the negotiation and so that you can determine what their needs and wants might be. So once you've got a decent understanding of what their needs and wants might be, now you can start overlapping those two charts. And when you start to see overlap, negotiation theorists call this the zone of possible agreement or the ZOPA, you've probably heard it being called. But that's where the deal actually happens. And that's when you can start negotiating and optimizing. Very interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, we're both strong believers in knowledge is power. So to your point, the more information, the more data that you gather on the party that you're working with, the more successful you're going to be in the negotiation. Naturally. Totally. So, so on the, on the, on the debriefing side of it, what are, what are the top questions one should ask themselves after an, a negotiation? What are, what do you typically ask yourself? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you were going to limit it to only three questions, it would be, what did I do? Well, what did I not do? Well, what can I do better next time? But if you want to go really deeper into that, it's not only what did I do well, but what words and questions and statements were delivered well. And if you've planned properly, you have all that planned out. How did they receive those words? What were the reactions that I got to those words? And you can go really, 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 really deep if you want to. But if you want to limit it to just three to get started on this is what did I do well? What did I not do well? And what can I do better next time? Um, do you, do you ever, I'm just, I'm just curious. Do you ever typically record and listen to yourself? You yeah, it, 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 it depends. I mean, yeah. I don't know what the legality is in certain exactly. states about being able to record negotiations. Yeah, some you can, some you can, yeah. You can uh, do it in so, New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> We're the wild west out here. So yeah, I, I, I think you should just probably check with legal counsel before you yeah. decide to record a negotiation. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know if you would really want to. I mean, if you, I think that probably one of the things that you do want to do in the absence of recording a negotiation is bringing a scribe to the negotiation, someone who can take really good notes That's a good idea. during that negotiation so that you can understand what was said. And a lot of people go into negotiations as sort of like a one-person event. And it, it really shouldn't be that way because you can't be everything in the negotiation. I mean, the, the major roles you need to have in the negotiation are the negotiator, right? The person who's actually doing the negotiation, someone who's observing and watching body language, tone of voice, all that kind of stuff. And then someone who's doing the scribe, right? The, the writing, taking yeah. the notes. Because what's going to happen afterwards when you do your debrief is you're going to say, hey, I think this person responded this way. What did you observe? Oh, okay. They actually did this. And then what did I say, scribe, when they did this? Oh, you said this. Okay, perfect. Now, do I want to double down on that effort or do I want to pull back? Did I pressure too hard? That's why that group dynamic is so powerful. Yeah. But it becomes a resourcing issue, right? So sure. you got to think about how you're going to address it going forward. Now, the easiest way to do that is if you don't have the people that are available to you to be able to do this kind of a negotiation is immediately after the negotiation is done, write down everything that you remember and all of your notes into an email format. Make sure it's clean. Make sure you got all the points that you agreed to and send that over to the counterparty immediately to say, here's what I believe we agreed to. Do we need to add, change, or remove anything? Let me know. Let me know by X time at X date. 
Yep. And that helps to keep everyone on the same page great, throughout great to tip. make sure that everyone's always following the negotiation. And yeah. then you have got a written record of it, right? Yep. Which is big. Which is always big. And then, so lastly, and, and, and I was, I was kind of laughing in my head when you were talking about your third point, but because we see it all the time. I mean, I, and I think everyone does. It's always like, well, I don't want to insult the other party. Right. right. Um, we hear that constantly. In fact, I was just dealing in a negotiation last week. That, that exact thing happened. My, my, I guess my question to you is on that. Is it best to throw the number out first or to wait for the number? Because that's something, I mean, in, in, question. yeah, and all the, all the podcasts I listen to and in, in my study of negotiation, that's like one of the hottest debated items out there. And some people say, you know, it's good to throw the number out first because it sets the stage and then other people say you don't want to do that because, you know, you don't know what you'll get. So, I mean, what from, again, a professional negotiator standpoint, what's your viewpoint on that? What would you advocate to our viewers? So there's two schools of thought, like you said, right? This is why it's so hotly debated. Um, and the, <laughs> the consultant answer is it depends. Um, <laughs> But I'm going to give you both schools of thought and then you can make up your mind about it. And I'll give you what my opinion is. So a lot of people think, hey, I should, I should wait. I should wait to receive the first offer or I should wait to receive the first number or the first set of commercial terms because I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to be getting. I might get more information. They may give me a number that was way better than I was expecting. And so I should wait for that information. And that's not wrong, depending on the circumstance. Then the other school of thought is that I should always throw out the first number or the first set of commercial terms. And the reason that people believe this is because there's a psychological term called anchoring that exists in negotiation. And anchoring is this predisposition that we respond um, to the first number more than the counteroffer. So statistically, and they've done a bunch of research on this, is you, your mind is being anchored to that first set of terms. And so you are more likely then to come be, to agree to a set of terms that are closer to that first set of terms than to the counteroffer that would have been planned. Now that counteroffer that you're, that person's going to make is now based on that anchor point not necessarily based on what it quote unquote should have cost, right? So they, now they feel like they're getting into this negotiation mindset. Anyway, there's, there was a study that was done by Dan Ariely, um, who's a, a social scientist. He talked about um, in the middle of his class, he started bringing out, actually it was at the beginning of his class, he told everyone to pull out or think about their social security numbers. And then he said, the last two digits of your social security numbers, I want you to write down as a price. And <clears throat> so they wrote down, you know, whether it was eight, nine, it was $89, or it was two, three, it was $23. And then he went on with his lecture. And then in the middle of his lecture, he just brought out random goods, chocolate, wine, whatever it might be. And he would hold up a bottle of wine to everyone in the class and say, what would you price this bottle of wine at? And what he found was, is the people that had the higher price, the social security number that was attached to it, were 60 to 120% more likely to pick a higher price for the item. That is the power of anchoring. Now, your social security number has nothing to do with the price of a bottle of wine. And yet, it drove a perceived value 
that existed on the object. And so this is why this is such a hotly debated item because people are like, well, if anchoring is true, and it is, then I should throw out the first number because I want that person, I want the, the, the benefit of being more statistically likely to get closer to my price than what they would have come in with. Um, but, and here's the caveat, it depends. So because we know that most people don't ask for more than they expect to get in a negotiation, um, we know that if the party that we're negotiating with isn't well-versed in negotiation, um, and we can find this out through our questions and the conversations that we have to find out more about them. Remember, I spoke about those open-ended questions. If they're not great at negotiation, then I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for the information to come into me because chances are they're probably not going to ask for very much or they're going to ask for less than they expect to get. And so I'm going to wait for that information. However, if the party is well-versed in negotiation, they know the game, they know how to play, they've been around the block a lot, um, I'm going to preemptively strike and I'm going to set the anchor point first so that I can make sure that I'm now statistically more likely to get closer to what I want. Now, that also comes with a caveat that my research has to be on point, which means that under my understanding of the market, my understanding of the trends, uh, all of my financial analysis that's gone into this, any kind of discounted cash flow modeling that I've done, all of that has to be well thought out prior to so that I can come in with what I actually believe is the right set of commercial terms. Otherwise, I could be anchoring at the totally wrong point. So it all comes with a caveat. If you're really, if you're dealing with someone that's great at negotiation and your should cost analysis is great, your, all of your anal analytical work is great, go in and anchor 100% every single day. But if it's not good and the counterparty is not great at negotiation, then you would wait for the information. My opinion is it, it totally depends on the situation that you're going into. And, and, and so many people, this is what bugs me about a lot of negotiation training. So many people say, oh, you got to do it this way or you got to do it that way. And that's not necessarily true because different circumstances require different reactions and, and different types of planning. You don't get married to one set of ideas or one set of techniques or one set of tactics because you're going to limit yourself in your growth and your learning. So it depends on the situation that you're going into. Yeah, very interesting and fascinating. And again, I think it, it kind of relates to, again, preparation and understanding, you know, what you're up against. And that's what I always tell my, my clients all the time. I mean, whatever number we offer, we need to have justification for. I mean, you know, and, and to your point, if you're, you know, if you're knowledgeable, you understand uh, your position and the market in our instance, you know, then you should anchor because you're well, well prepared to take on that negotiation. So, but what, what, what's kind of some, some uh, like when it comes to anchoring, is that better to do? I'm just curious if you're in a position of, of weakness versus strength. And I want to kind of talk, I mean, is anchoring something again, it's kind of situational, but when you're in a position of, of weakness entering into a negotiation, is it better to, to not anchor at that point in time? And then, you know, I'd like you to answer that, but also maybe, maybe give us a little bit of, of best practices when to, you know, when you are negotiating in a, uh, in a position of weakness. 
Give me, give me a for instance, because I, this is a question I get from a lot of people is like, what if you're weak in the negotiation? Mm-hmm. And so my question to those people is always, what makes you think that you're weak? So give me a for instance. So for instance, if, so we're, we're, you know, Gannon and I are active in retail real estate, for example, right? And oftentimes there's national credit tenants that are evaluating a certain trade area. And sure. there'll be multiple opportunities within a trade area. And you can have a somewhat comparable site in a trade area, but you may not have as good of an access into your property as, you know, maybe the opposing a competing property. property. Correct. So like that's okay. like, that's an example. So there's, there's lots of supply and people who are looking for space, they have their, their pick of the litter basically. And they, you know, that's what makes you believe that you're potentially weak in that negotiation. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So I think one of the things that we, <laughs> we do pretty poorly as, as salespeople in general, when we're, I, if we're selling space or if we're, whatever we're selling, we, we don't do a very good job of understanding necessarily what that counterparty actually needs and wants. And this, so this actually goes back to my first question is, you know, maybe it is that you're on the surface, you look weaker, but are you really so what does that person actually need and want? Do they, do they need and want better commercial terms? Do they need and want better access? Do, are they trying to manage cash flow better? Is, is this purely a location play? It, there's, there's so many facets to what would make someone weak or strong that I, I think a lot of people go into negotiations perceiving that they're a lot weaker than they actually are without doing enough research to determine whether that's actually true. But let's say, for example, you've done the work, you've done the research, you've determined, I don't actually have a lot of leverage here. There's a lot of competing players in the space in this trade area. I don't have a great property compared to others and and my terms aren't as great. So how am I going to win this deal? So my recommendation to you would be what are you doing to separate yourself from the competition? Instead of drawing light to what your weaknesses are, what are you drawing light to in terms of your strengths? And then you got to double down on those strengths. Then once you're in that conversation to talk about all of the strengths of having your property versus other properties, how are you going to translate that into economic success for the counterparty? And how are you going to play on their emotions because emotions are big in negotiations to turn that logical opportunity into an emotional connection. So Aristotle had um, three things that he spoke about when he said, you've, you've got to have three things in a persuasive speech. He said, you've got to have logos, which is logic. You've got to have pathos, which is the emotion. And you've got to have ethos, which is your, your quote unquote ethical credibility. So logic, you should be able to have a logical argument all day long, right? You should be able to have a logical discussion because of your data. But what happens if you don't have the pathos that's attached to it? What's the emotional connection? So the question ultimately becomes, how do I tie my logical argument to an emotional draw of what I have? And one of the key questions that I ask a lot of people whenever I get into a negotiation um, about whatever it might be where I feel like I don't have a lot of leverage, but I can feel a lot of resistance to what I'm offering. The, the, the most important question I ask is what happens if you don't make a decision to go with us? 
And so that question now gets them thinking about, well, I mean, nothing. I just, I'm just going to go and pick another property, right? Like you're one of many. It's not a big deal. Like I'm going to go and find someone else. Um, and ultimately that answer is nothing is going to change, right? Nothing's going to change in my life. And so if then I ask the question, uh, then I say to that person, well, you're right. Nothing is going to change. You're never going to experience the benefits that I've offered. You're never going to experience the improved cash flow that I've offered. You're never going to experience the location that I've offered. You're never going to be able to get to all of these different things that I've offered in this deal. Um, and, and that is an opportunity that you are going to miss out on. I think in negotiation, we do a lot of work to talk about um, the, the cost to do business, but we don't do a lot of talking about the missed opportunity cost, right? So if once I can ask this question, what if you don't make a decision? Like what happens then? Then I can start talking about the opportunity cost of not going with us. And once I can start talking about the opportunity cost of not going with us, then I can start framing my statements in a way that make that person think that they should go with us. So for example, if I said to you, hey, if you do this deal with me, uh, chances are you are going to be uh, in a position to make an additional 2 million this year, which is fantastic. Now, the funny thing about negotiation is, and the funny thing about human, human psychology is, is we actually respond more emotionally to um, uh, the fear of loss than the potential of gain. So once I've asked that original question of what happens if you don't make a decision and we get into the uh, emotional connection, instead of saying, you know, if you do this deal, you're going to make an extra $2 million. I could say, Hey, if you don't do this deal, chances are you're going to lose out on $2 million. Yeah. Interesting. Now that's a very different question. It's exactly the same data, but it's a very different frame of a question. I know that statistically you are more likely to act based on fear of loss than the potential of gain. And so if I can get you to that emotional connection to show you the opportunity that you're missing out on by playing on your fear of loss, I've now increased my chances and gained more leverage and gained more strength in the negotiation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because when I get in positions like that, I found it most effective oftentimes when you know, other brokers or, or the tenants are like, hey, I'm going to you know, go pursue this other property. I tell them, you know what? You, you, probably should go ahead, you know, and we'll, we'll just pursue a different path. And you can almost immediately, most time they say, well, well, that's know, not the response. Not, not really what I, that's not really what I, yeah, that's not really what I was saying, you know what I mean? But it's interesting <laughs> how that works, you know, cause yeah. to your point, you, you, you kind of take that away from them. Um, you know, it's just interesting to see psychologically what that really does. Um, so, so that's, that's great insight. Um, and again, it goes down to human behavior. Uh, and how we react to certain things. So yeah. um, another fact that we deal with often in commercial real estate that we love to get your opinion on is, is time. And, yeah. you know, I've listened to, again, some of your podcasts and other podcasts on negotiation. And, you know, timing is such an important thing when it comes to a negotiation. And one of the biggest hurdles that we have in our business is, is our negotiation process is sometimes extremely long. And oftentimes, one party is in a more urgent position than the other party. And we always try to get people to move quicker through a transaction. And I would just love to hear your opinion, aside from just saying, you know, time is of the essence and, 
you know, oh, this guy really, you know, we, we need to get this wrapped up quickly. I mean, what, what negotiation tactics can one use to make the opposing party respect their timeline and to move quicker in a transaction if you need them to move quicker? Do you, do you set deadlines? We do, um, but oftentimes, so, so like a good example for that, right, is, is oftentimes we say, well, we really need to get this done by, you know, next Thursday. And it comes in, and honestly, Mark, I'm dead serious, and Gannon, you can speak to this, but oftentimes people just don't, they just don't react to it. They just don't react to it. So that's, again, why, why I'm asking this question. I mean, is there, is there some sort of tactic that you've seen used from a timing perspective in a negotiation to make people respond and to respect you more when it comes to a time? Yeah. Um, you've got, so there's two parts to this. Number one, I would try and understand what their time limits are, right? Like what's their commitment? Do they have to make a, dis like for example, like you're bringing a new franchise partner into a strip mall um, and they have to figure out, you know, we got to have this in by a certain date, X, Y, Z, whatever it might be. What is their timeline? How are they going to actually attack that? Because that's going to help you develop it. That's one thing. But if you can't get that information, how do you try and move the deal faster? Um, it, software salespeople have been very successful at um, making certain deals available by a certain time, right? So this deal expires at whatever it might be. However, I haven't seen that work very well in the real estate world. I just don't, I just don't see it happening. And, and also for SaaS software people, it, I mean, it's, it's becoming a dying thing. And I don't recommend that you do that. One of the things that a lot of people um, do, and I think is very important, is to set expectations at the beginning of the process. Because your expectations of how a negotiation should go and my expectations about how a negotiation should go are two different things. In fact, we probably have different opinions about what negotiation even is. So before we even get into the negotiation, we, we've almost got to think of it from a project management perspective of you're responsible for this, I'm responsible for this, here are all the different parties that are going to be involved in, let's map out the process almost like in a racy chart, um, or even you could put it into a Gantt chart or something like that to determine, okay, who's responsible for certain timelines that we're going to hit along the way. And the reason that you communicate all of this up front is because you want to be clear with the counterparty of like, look, this can't take forever, right? You're busy, mm -hmm. very busy. You're trying to do other things. You're searching for other opportunities. So are we. We're also very busy. We're also trying to search for other opportunities. The only way to make this deal move forward is if both of us adhere to agreed upon timelines that we set up front. So we're going to do our best to meet those timelines. We need an agreement from you that you're going to do your best to meet those timelines. Now, stuff comes up and maybe we can adjust along the way. We totally understand that. However, before we go in, this is the way that we see this working. Now, the person who controls the agenda and the person who controls the timeline is usually the person who controls the negotiation. So if you can set that agenda, that Gantt chart, whatever it might be, on all the different timelines and get agreement on those timelines up front, you then begin to control the pace of that negotiation. But you are negotiating how to negotiate at the beginning of the negotiation, right? Here are the timelines. Can we get agreement? Here are the things that we want to hit. Can we get agreement? 
And once all of that's done, you've put it in writing, you sent your email, this is what we agreed to, everyone's agreed to this, now we can start to move forward. Uh, but if people say, look, we're not agreeing to these timelines, we're gonna take our time, we really don't, you know, we don't need to hit a certain date, then you're gonna say, cool, we're gonna start searching for other opportunities as well, because clearly this isn't very important to you, you're just kicking tires, fantastic, have a great day. Yeah. And so now you've removed that leverage that they had in the negotiation, just exactly what you said before, and you basically said, give us a shot whenever you're ready, and we're gonna pursue other opportunities in the meantime because this isn't an exclusive deal anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I think that's extremely effective. Oftentimes it's just calling them out on it. You know? Yeah. And I've heard that. Like, are, you, are you here to do a deal or yeah. are you here to kick tires? Yeah. I don't have time to fuck around. Yeah. Right. Like off you go. Yeah. See you later. Yeah, exactly. And, and to that point, I'm, I'm curious when it comes to negotiating and, and this, this relates almost directly to what we were just talking about from, from a tone standpoint, how does one set the stage when entering negotiation, like time time wise? You know, if you have a scheduled conference call, you know you have leverage. Is it best to, you know, be a couple minutes late? Is it? I mean, the, is, the there, is, class is, is there is there is there tips and tricks? And again, I mean, we're 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 digging deep down psychologically, but I'm curious. Uh, how do you set so, the stage? So so the what you brought up there is like a very famous negotiation tactic to try and build psychological leverage mm -hmm. in the other yeah. party's mind. If you're going to do that, have one of your assistants come on the line early to make sure that that party is connected and that you're there, like if yeah. it's a Zoom call or a conference call or whatever it might be. But yeah, you showing up a couple of minutes late, if you were going to do that, never apologize never apologize. You just show in and say, hey guys, ready to get going. Listen, here's the things that we wanted to discuss and you just hit it hard right away. Um, or you crack a joke or whatever it might be, but you never apologize for being late. Um, that's very, like if you listen to the episode that we did with Aaron Clath, that's very much how he approaches negotiation. And in fact, for the podcast that we did, he showed up late. So his assistant, <laughs> like he lives and eats and breathes what he does, right? So his assistant came on early and was like, well, you know, he's really busy. Um, he was just closing a deal and blah. And they very rote. Like you could tell this was so, per it was so perfect. And then he showed up two minutes late and he's like, what's going on guys? And he cracked a joke and he's like, all right, we're going to do this thing or what? And I was just like, this is classic, right? Classic. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Hey, I'm going to yeah. start showing up late to our podcast. Yeah. Okay, now you know what's going on. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, it, I don't know, man. It's, it's effective in terms of how you show up. It totally depends on um, the kind of industry that you're in. I mean, in commercial real estate, you're dealing with a lot of big egos, right? So yeah. it, it's okay to flex every now and again. But if you were in manufacturing, for example, that shit just wouldn't fly, right? So it really depends on the industry that you're in. Yeah. Well, and I've also heard on your podcast on the flip side of that, if someone shows up late, you can say, Oh, I, you know, I, I, you're here for the 1003 meeting versus <laughs> <laughs> how nice of you to join us. So then yeah. it kind of flips the stage back on, you know, I just, it's, if, if I know that the person is trying to flex and, yeah. and just trying to be, you know, gain psychological leverage, I'd be like, look, I mean, obviously this isn't important to you, so why don't you call me when it becomes important to you and yeah. I hang up? I, 
I mean, just, that's pretty strong. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, well, like, don't show up late, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you're gonna if you're gonna flex, I'm gonna flex back. Yeah. Right. So I think it really de- you got to read it pretty well, um, but our, I mean, it works for our in class. So yeah. give it a shot. I mean, this is the thing, right? Like, you got to try. You got to try. You don't know if it's gonna work until you try it. So try it and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, cool. Try it again and yeah. see if it works. Maybe it was your delivery. You don't know. And this is the thing that a lot of people ask is like, well, what works and what doesn't work? Like, have you tried anything yet? Yeah. Try it. See if it works for you. Yeah. Mark, do you guys do a lot of role playing in in your training or you could just do in muscle memory, you know, time and time again, because in, I've done so many different sales jobs. I mean, door to door, medical sales, uh, healthcare recruiting, real estate. And, And so much of that comes naturally after a period of time and we used to do a ton of role playing and i it's work but it works yeah. uh do you guys use that in your business all the time yeah. yeah role playing is super important because a lot of people it's it comes down to the practice thing that we were talking about earlier right the more you practice the better you're going to get it's the yeah. same for everything um and a lot of us don't excuse me a lot of us don't have the opportunity to role play we just don't have the opportunity to practice with other people who may be at our company or whatever it is. And so you've got to find opportunities to, because it's really about putting yourself into very uncomfortable and awkward positions. Mm -hmm. That's really it. And then finding your way out of it. So what I ask a lot of people to do, if you don't have the opportunity to role play with people in your company or um, in your department or whatever it might be, um, you've got to find opportunities to do that. And the easiest way to do that is at the grocery store Um, because you're going to, Put yourself into a very awkward situation, very uncomfortable situation very quickly. If you've got a full cart of groceries and you show up at Costco um, or Walmart or whatever it is, and you're in line and you ask for a 15% discount from the cashier, who's a, you know, a 17 year old guy who really doesn't give a shit about your life. That's going to become very awkward very quickly. Right. And so um, ask for that discount. Don't give any justifications. Don't, um, tell them you're an employee. Don't tell them you took this crazy advice from this nutso negotiation guy. Um, just ask for it and wait and be silent and shut up and see what happens. They're going to call the manager over. They're going to question you. You're going to be like, no, I just, I really want this discount. Well, why are you an employee? Well, no, I just really want the discount. And it's going to get really awkward because by the time you get to this point, there's going to be like 13 people behind you. <laughs> you know, the guy, the guy, seven people back is going to lean over and say, what the hell? I'm just trying to buy groceries here. You're going to get super embarrassed. You're going to go really red. And that's great. I mean, that's exactly the position that you want to be in. It's not about getting the deal. It's about putting yourself into a position that you need to find out, right? You might not get the deal. Chances are you're probably not going to yeah. get the whole yeah, philosophy okay. that gr- growth is on the other side of your comfort zone kind of thing. You got to put yourself into uncomfortable positions yeah. all the time. I mean, that's, that's a great tip. And, and before we wrap up, I just, if you can, can you share with us, like, uh, that was a great tip right there. I mean, can you share with us maybe like two or three other, you know, common tips that people use in negotiating? Um, yes. So I think 
that for sure is something that you've got to do on an ongoing basis. I'll go back to my original thing that I said at the beginning that people do wrong is ask, they don't ask for enough. So don't negotiate with yourself before you go into the negotiation. At least let the counterparty crush your dreams before you crush your own dreams. Because otherwise, what's the point? So ask, don't, don't negotiate with yourself before you go into the negotiation. And maybe the third one that I would give is... Yeah, let's, let's talk about isopraxism. Um, so what Voss talks about mirroring, right? I don't know if any of your listeners have read Chris Voss's book, um, Never Split the Difference. Fantastic book, by the way. But he talks about mirroring. But what he talks about as mirroring is not actually the mirroring that I'm talking about, which is isopraxism, which is this idea that we mirror the behavior of others to um, make each other feel more comfortable. So if, if you are reacting a certain way, then I generally react that way as well. If you lean into the conversation, then generally I lean into the conversation and it's just how we're built. I mean, if you look at us, we're basically just evolved chimps. Chimps do this all the time, right? They react one way, we react another way. That's how it goes. And so what you can do in a conflict-based situation or a, a very tense negotiation is if um, you know, the other party is losing control, the opposite effect works. And so what ends up happening is, let's just say, for example, isopraxism works great for letting each other feel comfortable, but it also it works terribly when people get out of control. So if you are tense in a negotiation, my immediate emotional reaction, or if you get angry, my immediate emotional reaction is also to get angry. Mm -hmm. that, that's basically the fight or flight thing that happens in your brain, right? You've got the, the very primitive part of your brain is called the amygdala. The amygdala produces a hormone called cortisol. Cortisol is a special hormone it goes through your body and you freak out basically you're like okay i'm i'm not happy i'm in the fight or flight zone what you really have to do in those kinds of tense situations is break mirroring you have to f you have to force yourself to break the mirroring because otherwise it becomes this um arms race of anger right so you get angry i get angrier you get angrier i get angrier and then we just explode if I want to control the negotiation and I want to reduce the tension in the negotiation, when you get angry, that's when I need to double down on being calm and actually lean into the conversation, soften my features in my face, tilt my head slightly to show you that I'm listening to you, um, maintain that eye contact that's super, super important so that I can start reducing the tension. Because if I use isopraxism, if I just let my emotions get the best of me and freak out, we're going to come to blows. We're going to come to some sort of a disagreement, and it's just going to take longer for us to get through that negotiation. So we've actually got to think about breaking that mirroring cycle so that we can now move forward in the negotiation. But without... If I didn't do that and I just let my emotions get the best of me because of just the way that the body works with cortisol, then I'm going to lose track of the negotiation. Things are going to spin out of control really quickly. Well, and to, and to me, it's a form of control. I mean, always. If, if you don't react when someone's reacting, I mean, 
it, 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 it immediately comes apparent that you are in control of the situation. Yeah. One of the things that a lot of people say, they're like, they're like, well, that's nice, Mark. I mean, great advice, but how do I do that actually? Because when other people get angry, like my response is like, all right, we're going to go like, we're going to get angry and we're going to fight and we're going to, but what you have to try and think about is how it's not, how do I, how do I change this? But how do I use the correct part of my brain to be able to respond properly because when you get into that situation, it's, it's the hormone that's filling your body that's causing you to react a certain way, um, which is very sort of ancient response, which has kept us alive for millennia, right? But now we, we're not hunted by saber-toothed tigers or wolves or whatever it might be, so we, we can afford the time to be able to respond calmly. The only way to do that is to start using your your prefrontal cortex, which is the, the more evolved part of your brain, helps us with decision-making and logic and all that kind of stuff. But how do I activate that prefrontal cortex? There's been a number of studies that have been done recently to show that, and this is, I know it sounds sort of like weird, but meditation and mindfulness help us to activate our prefrontal cortex earlier in conflict-based situations mm so that we can maintain calm during those types of situations. And so whenever people hear me say this, they're like, oh no, it's another meditation guy. <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's not just, you know, to be a you know, holistic guru. It's actually active negotiation skill that you can use to get better at logical decision-making and logical responses in conflict-based situations. Fascinating. Yeah, it's it's wild on how it improves your decision making. Um, thank you for that, Clay. Do you want to give Mark an opportunity to uh, talk about his coaching just a little bit? I, I was just going to say that. I think All there's right. the, the practicing of negotiation, and there's the more academic and and. Uh, coaching side of things. So, I mean, by all means, please, can you give us a little bit of background on, on negotiations ninja and what you do along with, you know, uh, all the other businesses that you do as well. We'd love to just hear more about that. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, so yeah. So negotiations ninja is a training coaching and content company. Our good job is to evangelize good negotiation practices, regardless of what kind of position that you're in. Um, the easiest way to find us is to find us online, which is negotiations.ninja, not .com or anything like that. Our domain name is negotiations.ninja. Uh, we recently launched a fantastic new community called Dojo, which is um, a community that we started to bring geeks uh, into it and, and really understand like if you want to be a negotiator, like a nerd, when you, if you're a nerd about negotiation, you just love it. You think it's the best thing since sliced bread. We want you to be a part of this community. Um, it's a brand new community where we provide monthly coaching, group coaching to um, all the com negotiation community uh, on a one and a half hour basis over Zoom. And we've got a social media site where we network and ask questions and punch each other in the face with negotiation stuff and debate and get into conversations about things that most people don't talk about when it comes to negotiation. Um, so if you're a geek for anything, sales, negotiation, procurement, banking, whatever it might be, we want you to be a part of that. And the easiest way to do that is to contact me 
online um, through LinkedIn, and I'll give you the information. It is a private community, so I don't give out the, the details on podcasts, but if you want to be a part of that, contact me online. Absolutely. So, well, thanks again for being here. We'll obviously put all that information in the show notes. And, you know, I, again, I think there's just, it's, it's fascinating because negotiation is just not surface level stuff. I mean, it's, it's definitely, definitely psychological and in order to be effective and be the best negotiator you can be, you really got to dig deep and study this stuff because it, it's just, it, it can, it can just change your life the better you negotiate. I mean, just can. So thanks for being here. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for being generous with your time. And uh, thank you for having me on. It was great, guys. You guys run a great show. Thank you very much. This was really good. We appreciate it. So thank you, Mark. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. If you feel someone within your network would benefit and learn from this podcast, please feel free to share this or any other episode with them. If you feel you have benefited from this podcast, please leave us a review on any platform where you listen to podcasts. We greatly appreciate your support and feedback, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next show. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay educated.